as well. Today, we're going to be continuing our Peacemaker series, this series that we have in the fall. And today's lesson is is one that is challenging us. So, you know, we've been challenged each week, and, and I have as I've been preparing these lessons, and I've heard from many of you as well, because God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. This working for peace, is, it's, it's challenging. These are hard teachings, and, and it's causing us to get outside of our comfort zone, to stretch us, to to challenge us in a way that, um, that, uh, that we might not really um, be comfortable with because we're called to be kind, to respect, to honor those, to love those who, who don't look like us, who, who don't think like me, who don't vote like me, who don't see scripture like me. But I realize that this is God's intention. That as we go to his word, his word is supposed to challenge us and to stretch us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And so this is what's supposed to take place when we read Scripture. We always need to be challenged, and we always need to feel exposed by the light of God's Word. And we need to be ready to be molded more into God's image, like soft clay in the hands of a potter. So last week, Greg taught, and he took us back to the very beginning. We went back to Genesis 1 and we saw that all of us, all mankind are created in the image of God. And so we're supposed to treat each other with that in mind. But we also saw that because of sin, a worldly wisdom, and even a demonic wisdom has come into this world and it's caused us to be self-centered, to be ambitious in a in a negative way and to be unspiritual, and it competes with our allegiance to Christ. And Greg ended his teaching with this scripture from James, where James challenges us, basically saying, are you going to follow worldly wisdom or are you going to follow heavenly wisdom? So today we're going to pick up from where Greg left off, and we're going to see how easy it is for us as followers of Christ to choose to embrace wisdom from this world rather than wisdom from God. And so I hope that you've got your Bibles with you or you've got a device that you can power up because we're going to start off this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians starting in chapter 1, 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. Here Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So today we're going to be talking about God's wisdom and how God's wisdom is set up against the wisdom of this world. And we're going to Look at times when the weak is the new strong. Now, as I was wrestling with this text throughout this week, it reminded me of something that happened to me. I hadn't thought of it in a long time, but it's just interesting how sometimes uh, as you're going through Scripture, a, a memory will pop into your mind. And, and this happened to me. And I remembered a, a night that was very special to me because it was the night that I had my first date with Sarah. We were invited by um, uh, another couple who was my sweet mate and who was Sarah's roommate to go to join them on a double date to watch a basketball game. Now, uh, Sarah doesn't really enjoy basketball, but she went anyway. I'm really happy about that. We went to this out-of-town game. We rode. We talked a lot uh, in the cars. We went. We got there. We found our seats, and I found myself not really caring about the game at all, just really enjoying my conversation with Sarah. But then, sometime during the game, two people in about in a row that was two or three rows in front of us, started shouting at each other. And no one really began watching the game after that. They, they shifted their attention to the confusion that was taking place in the stands right below us. Well, these two individuals got up and they started making threats with each other. And those threats led to blows being offered. And then it started to spread among others that were sitting around them. And so we stood up looking, watching the action that was going down on right below us. And I noticed something. I noticed that Sarah stood up, but she positioned herself right behind me. And she grabbed my arm. 
I remember having two thoughts about that. My first thought was, wow, this is nice. <laughs> She's thinking of me as her protector. I can be her hero tonight. My second thought is, what am I doing here? <laughs> I don't know how to fight. I've never been in a fight my entire life. If she's expecting me to be her protector, she's looking at the wrong person. Now, I might have looked like I could protect her. But inside I knew that I couldn't. I was a fraud. I was totally equipped, ill-equipped, totally ill-equipped for a street fight. Well, the security came and luckily the, the fight didn't make itself, it, it work its way up to our particular row. And we went on with the rest of the evening, but it bothered me that she thought of me in that way. And I didn't, I didn't want her to, to have this assumption that I knew how to fight when I really didn't know that at all. And so... I thought, well, you know, I need to be honest with her. And so I said, Sarah, about tonight, if that fight had come to our row, I would have been totally useless. I'm not a fighter at all. And she looked and she smiled at me and she says, I knew that. But thanks for being honest. You see, sometimes we can confuse things that are strong and things that are weak. We can look at things that are really weak and think they're strong. And we can look at things that are, have the appearance of being weak, but they're actually strong. In this passage, Paul's going to, to lead us into this discussion of a new way of thinking. This new wisdom. This new way of looking at the world. This wisdom of God that's so countercultural that it's actually called foolishness. In verse 18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we preach Christ crucified, he says in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's important for us to understand that in the first century, to speak of Christ and crucified at the same time was to speak of a Savior, someone anointed by God who failed. That's why it was foolish. That's why, that's why it was seen as a fraud. You see, enemies of the state were crucified. It was those who were weak. They got caught. They were punished. They were crucified. And so to speak of someone who's anointed by God as crucified, someone who's chosen by God as crucified would have been beyond mere paradox. It would have been nonsense. And so here we have these two wisdoms that Paul's talking about colliding colliding in the lives of those who are part of the church there in Corinth. He speaks about the wisdom of empire. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of empire where there's domination, there's power, there's control, where there's this, this intentional effort to keep everyone in their place. You see, the wisdom of empire can bring peace, but it's a false peace. In, in Rome, they were proud of 
what they would call Pax Romana, this Roman peace. But it wasn't really peace. It was pre peace that came from domination. It was peace that came because if you rebelled against the authority, you were put to death in a public way, in a shameful way, to teach a lesson to anyone else. And so you have the wisdom of empire, but then comes Jesus teaching a new wisdom, living out a new wisdom. It's the wisdom of the cross. And Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example were in direct conflict with the wisdom of empire. Jesus told parables or these stories about what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which would be communities where God reigned and everything worked the way that God intended for it to work from the very beginning. And, and these stories that Jesus tells have, they, they have unlikely heroes and, and they have surprising endings. They're stories about Moneylenders who forgave extravagant debts for no reason at all. Stories about people sharing generously with those in need rather than storing up all that they could collect in storehouses to use for their own desires. Stories about a little bit of yeast that if it's put into a, a batch of dough, will impact the entire batch, even though the yeast is so small. Stories about a shepherd, a shepherd that's willing to leave his entire herd to go and to look for that one sheep that was lost and unable to be part of the herd. Stories about a Samaritan a Samaritan who cared for his enemy that he found beaten on the side of the road. And instead of letting him die and saving himself the trouble and lots of money, he cared for his enemy and showed concern, respect, and love. Stories about a banquet, an extravagant banquet that was thrown not for the noble, not for the powerful, not for the rich, but a banquet that was thrown for the poor, for the powerless, for the outcast. Stories in which the hungry are fed, the thirsty find drink, strangers are welcomed, the naked are clothed, and prisoners are visited in prison, not to earn any recognition, but just all part of what the natural uh, habits would be, the natural life would be for those who are followers of God. This is what people of God do. Story about a son who wished his father dead so that he could take his inheritance. He took the inheritance and he, he took it and spent it in ungodly ways. And then when he found himself suffering in a position that, would, that was worse than even the servants in his father's household, he decided to return home, only to find his father waiting for him, welcoming him, and restoring him to his position in the family, just as if he'd never left. And we could go on, and we could go on. Stories of the cross. 
You see, Jesus' followers had no rights to demand. They had no special privilege that they could enjoy. Life wasn't easy for them. They were oppressed by ruthless outsiders. And yet they were told by Jesus to creatively resist that oppression, but not with force, but by turning the other cheek, by going the extra mile, by forgiving those who had wronged them, by offering blessing to those who persecuted them. Jesus actually called on his followers to love their enemies. And he said, if you're harmed, rather than seek revenge, find ways to do good. Do good to them. And so Paul in our text is writing to this church in Corinth, and he says, Jesus is inviting you into a new way of thinking. You don't have to think in terms of empire. Think of the wisdom of the cross. You're called to that wisdom of the cross. And he compares these two ways of thinking. Which is the best Lord? Which wisdom is making the better world? He says, think about it. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Think of how you were when you got called into this new way of thinking, when your eyes were open, when you began to see things in a new way, when you began to orient your life around another way of acting and another way of treating people. Think about who you were. He says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. How, how great is that line? That God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. You see, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, not empire. The way of Jesus is giving up power, not grabbing on to power. The way of Jesus is releasing control, not using force to hold on to power. So, what does this new way of thinking, this new wisdom look like when it's lived out into the church? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians goes on and on and on. You can see that in, in the church in Corinth, they had lots of problems. And, and Paul talks about those all the way up into 1 Corinthians 13. And many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's the, it's the pinnacle of his, of his letter that he says, you need to know about love because love is the greatest of all. Now, we could follow that in this lesson today, but that would mean that you would be here way longer than you want to be. That's another series for another time that hopefully we can get to. But for today, I want to move to another letter that Paul writes to another church. And this is the church at Ephesus, where in Ephesians chapter 5, he says basically the same thing that he's just said to the church at Corinth. We'll start in Chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in verse 8, we'll skip down to this verse where he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light. Live as children of light. You see, there's, he's talking about this new wisdom, this new way of living. You have darkness and you have light. And he says, live as children of life. Then he says, be careful. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. You see, the real fool is the one who chooses empire over cross. Well, Paul continues on with this interesting illustration. In verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now, as I was growing up, this verse was used often to say that you shouldn't drink and you should never, ever get drunk because drinking is bad and drunk, drunkenness is a sin. And I, that's true. But in this context here, I don't think Paul is using it in that way. What Paul is doing is he's comparing the impact the impact that alcohol has on someone's life, it causes them to act in a way that they wouldn't normally act. And so he says, it's not that he's calling us to be sober, but he's calling us to notice that when you have too much wine to drink, then you will be controlled by something that makes you act in a way that you wouldn't normally act. This is not your natural way of acting. And so he says, it's just as alcohol would cause someone to act in a way that would not be normal. So true. Be filled with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's going to cause you to act in a way that you wouldn't normally act. And you will begin to see the world in a way that you normally don't see the world. And so Paul then gives three examples of a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. You have the command here are the consequences. If you're filled by the Holy Spirit in verse 19, Paul says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and songs, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. You see, when you're filled with the Spirit, Paul says that you'll have this Spirit-led joy that constantly bursts into song. Not just on Sundays when we're sitting here in pews together. But when you're filled with the Spirit, this joy that you have is going to continually cause you just to bubble over with joy, full song from the Spirit. In verse 20, he gives us the second example. He says, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be singing songs from the Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, 
you will be filled with this Spirit-inspired gratitude, this Spirit-led gratitude in every circumstance. I know that many of you have gone through difficult times. I've talked with you, many of you, and you've told me that even in these darkest of times, even in these most challenging times, God has been able, you to, has been able to help you see something good, something that you're thankful for. This is the working of the Spirit. Spirit-inspired gratitude that we can have in every circumstance. But then notice number three, the third example that Paul gives us. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have Spirit-led submission in our relationship. The Spirit empowers us to carry out relationship in a way that the world doesn't know about. The world can't tap into this special resource of the Spirit. And so the way of empire says, you need to grab power. You need to use authority. If you're right, then you need to use that right because it's a privilege that you have for being right. But the way of the cross says, no, outdo one another. Find ways to outdo one another in showing honor, showing respect, putting their needs above your own. I think of it like this. If I had a string and I tied this part onto this arm and I had a string and I tied this part onto this arm, if I pulled apart, I would be trying to pull the other arm in that direction. This is wisdom of the world. But if this arm moves towards this arm, and this arm moves towards this arm. What happens? The tension that's there on this string is relaxed. And this is what Paul's trying to say. He's trying to say, move towards each other in love. Move towards each other, considering the needs of one another as greater than your own. Now, now, Paul's writing to a church here, but I think Paul wants to help them understand how this is even more practical. And so he begins to talk about how this is lived out in a household. And if you read on, you can see how it's lived out in the entire scope of a household. But this morning, we're just going to have time to look at husbands and wives. And so he says, first of all, to wives... As you submit to each other, wives, wives, you need to submit by giving your husband what he needs most. You need to be concerned about his needs. You need to move towards him. And you need to show him honor and sacrificial respect, just as you do Jesus. And then Paul turns and looks at the husband's. And this would have been really radical in the first century. We, we sometimes let it go over our heads and not really realize how radical these next few verses are in the scripture where he actually talks to husbands. 
He says, husbands, you need to submit to your wives. And the way that you do that is by giving to her what she needs most. Finding out what her needs are and dedicating your life, giving your energy and, and, and the insight towards meeting her needs. Show her sacrificial love just as Christ loved the church. Show her value. Cherish her as Christ cherished the church. And so in marriage, you have these two, two individuals who were at one time with the way of empire pulling away from each other, pulling the other one towards their way of thinking. And yet the wisdom of the cross says to both, submit to one another. Try to outdo each other in showing honor. Try to outdo each other in serving in the household. And then in case we miss it, he says in the very last verse of chapter 5, you may think that I'm making this up. I'm making the scripture say this, but I'm not. Paul says in the very last verse, he says, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now I have to admit, actions like this are not natural. It's not natural for me to go home and say, Sarah, where's the vacuum cleaner? Sarah, how can I serve you? That's not natural for me. Probably not natural for you either. It's only possible through the Holy Spirit. It's the wisdom of cross, not the wisdom of empire. Now, I need to pause and have a caveat here. Paul's not talking to someone who's in an abusive relationship. If you're in an abusive relationship, please, please talk to someone so that you can receive help and get out of that. Paul's talking about two people who are trying to make their marriage work. Two people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and should be having the best marriage ever if they followed the wisdom of cross. So how can you be a peacemaker in your marriage? It's by letting the Holy Spirit give you a humble heart of submission. And it doesn't make sense. Empire seems better. How can you be a peacemaker in church? We can begin to look at each other's needs. We can elevate the needs of others above the needs that we have. And that's not natural. It's the way of the cross not the way of empire. And it's only possible when we allow the Holy Spirit to change our heart and to mold us more into the image of God. Now, as you look through Paul's writings in the New Testament, you can see that his message is consistent. We've seen what he said to the church at Corinth. We've seen what he said to the church at Ephesus. But Let's close by just briefly looking at what he says to the church at Philippi. In Philippians, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, 
but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, the wisdom, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, as Christ Jesus, who, in, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul keeps asking, he asks the church at Corinth, he asks the church at Ephesus, he asks the church at Philippi, which path are you going to walk? Which path are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to walk in the way of empire? Or are you going to choose to walk in the way of cross? Which path is going to change the world? Is it the way of empire or the way of the cross? To be honest, the way of the cross looks like failure. It looks like foolishness, especially back then. Jesus hanging there on the cross looks like foolishness to the world. And then when you throw in the idea that the, the his, history says that Paul and all the apostles other than the apostle John and thousands of other Christians died as martyrs at the hands of empire, it especially looks foolish until you look at it from our vantage point. Because we see it differently. We see that the kingdom of God is still here. The kingdom of God is still changing lives. In fact, in my lifetime, the kingdom of God has grown faster than any time ever in history. When you take into account the church growth in China, when you take into account the church growth in Africa, the continent of Africa, the kingdom of God is here and it continues to grow. And yet, the vast, the powerful Roman Empire is no longer. T.R. Glover, he writes about the Apostle Paul standing in front of Nero. Nero, as he looks down on him and he condemns Paul to death, Glover writes this. He says, no one could imagine, no one could ever comprehend that the day would come when men would call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. So Paul's challenge then and then Paul's challenge now. Are you going to follow the wisdom of empire? Are you going to follow the wisdom of the cross? Is the world going to be made better by oppressive power and coercive violence and self-promotion or is the world going to be made better by sacrificial love do we have to live in the same old pattern of thinking where where we strive for power and 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 if you say horrible things to me then i'm going to say horrible things about you if you hurt me then i'm going to hurt you do we have to live in those cycles or can we break out of those cycles and really learn to live in freedom? Is the world made better when we take revenge on enemies or is the world made better when we actually move towards our enemies and forgive them and love them? 
This was a question that they wrestled with in the first century, and it's a question now. In this Peacemaker series, we're, we're trying to see how God intended us to be this countercultural society that we live in, to society that we live in right now. As I look back on history, I see that the church, particularly church history, I see that the church grew fastest in times of oppression, in times of persecution, in times when Christians had to huddle together and meet in homes. That's how the church has grown in China, through house churches and house church movement. You see, the church grows the best in times in which it stands out as different than society. And, and I would like for us to just look at the time that we're living in right now. The incredible opportunity that we as Christ followers, that we as the church of Jesus Christ have in our world today where we can be a counterculture to a culture of empire, to a culture of oppression, a culture where we grab power, a culture of, of toxicity, where we are polarized and where we, we continue to live in this state of anxiety because of all that's going on. The church can be different. The church can be such a wonderful example of God's love as we live out the principles of cross. This is only possible through the gospel. This is only possible because of Jesus Christ. And, and if you don't know Jesus today, I would love to talk to you. There are going to be lots of us, some of us in the, in, in the Welcome Center. We'll have an elder couple. We'll have some others that we would love to sit and visit with you about Jesus if you'd like to know more. Some of you have been putting off this, this, the, the act of baptism of making this public proclamation that Jesus is your Lord. If you would like to talk more about baptism, I would love to be able to see, help you see what the scriptures say about that. But this is possible only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's possible only as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says to us, that God blesses those who work for peace. For they will be called children of God.